0: This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special, with me, Rog, a bald who last week was invited to host a panel at MIT's Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. For those of you who aren't familiar, it's a gathering that yanks together some of the greatest brains in a bottle in sports to discuss analytics and data and its increasing role in our industry. So, my presence in Cambridge, Massachusetts, is a bit like a Scouse remake of Goodwill Hunting without the genius part, or Matt Damon's lovely hair, or his apples. But despite my lacking all three of those things, I somehow managed to host a panel on the role of analytics in football, the game we love, exploring the question of, if Common Wisdom has the NBA 10 years behind Major League Baseball in the use of its analytics, why then is soccer 10 years behind the NBA? Why is that? And what will change it? Luckily for you, the conversation features two other wonderful gents who shed a lot of light. On that question in one corner, ding, 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 Daryl Morey, the general manager of your Houston Rockets. He's an NBA data pioneer who's worked so long in that game. Many people think he invented numbers and he's a burgeoning football fan. He looks at a game we love with fresh eyes, but he's a little bit shocked at how even the big clubs utilize or don't utilize statistics in the other corner. It's Ted Knudsen. He's the owner and founder of Statsbomb Services, leading analytics player in the football world, former head of player analytics at Brentford in England, who did some fascinating stuff for a short spell. And Midtjylland in Denmark, a connected club, who also really experimented with data, and he's dedicated his life to soccer analytics. We wanted to bring this conversation to you as a pod special. Let you hear for yourself the role data plays in football and the role it could. We'll look closely at how clubs are utilising them, the barriers, the differences that makes data use a whole world of difference compared to the other sports and why Big Sam Allardyce might have just have been ahead of his time. From a data perspective, and not just in the world of pies. Daryl, I'm gonna begin with you.
1: Okay. You told me Nervous. you're not a
0: soccer expert. I'm definitely not. Truth of that is that you are an Arsenal fan. <laughs> there is a, not a single data point that would propel you to that heartbreaking decision.
1: Are we always in fourth?
0: Please God, fourth <laughs> would be a lovely thing. But your groundbreaking work in the NBA, it got you talking to soccer analysts in Europe, and your conclusion, you told me, was their data sucks. No one cares and no one should. And you said if you were
1: head of Chelsea, would I listen to the quants? No, I wouldn't. No. Why is that? The reality is it's a very complex sport, 11 on 11, lots of free moving, not a lot of set things. And every time something happens, you get zero. So how are you concluding anything? Everything leads to zero. Because of the lack of goals. Exactly. Like you can do everything right, you get zero. You can do everything wrong, you get zero. So it's very hard to differentiate. In the NBA, you go back and forth 100 times. And each time down, you get a pretty good distribution of zero, one, two, three, a lot of scoring. That allows us to differentiate things. I only listen to data when it really tells me something. And right now, the sport isn't there. You tell me, when you start to watch soccer, one of your big takeaways
0: was that you believe soccer obsessed too much about possession versus position.
1: At the end of the day, you need to be in the offensive end to score. And yet we're making these endless passes with no advance. A lot of what we learned in basketball was that early on, everyone was trying to play in a beautiful way. The point guard was making passes to the open person, and we found pretty quickly with the data that doing things quickly and scoring early is a bigger advantage, and not playing in this way that's more aesthetically pleasing, but just more brutishly effective with threes. Ted, I'm going to give you a moment to respond.
0: The
2: possession versus position thing, I think you're not wrong in many ways. Those of us who've watched soccer over the years in Europe would say that there are plenty of times where it's been really not attractive, but Jose Mourinho's been the coach when he was, had good teams, and it was effective. And we've looked at it from our perspective, and much like you found, that the threes and the dunks is a superior style of play. We're starting to get little bits of that, little glimpses of that. I wouldn't say that it's a cogent theory yet, but there are certain things that we know that we want to incorporate in our style regularly. Going fast is a big one. As many times a game as possible, you want to attack an unset defense. And so counterattacking is a big deal.
0: Leicester City, a fairy tale. I mean, not just in soccer, but in the world of sports, when they won the league, averaging 42% possession, which I think was the third lowest in the Premier League that season, they just attacked so quickly that defenses weren't set and no
1: one could stop them or keep up with them. My football club would be the launch and squish football club. <laughs> I would launch and press and squish and keep them in their end and look for turnovers. It seems like that style is coming. There's a gentleman
0: called Sam Allardyce, who I believe is about <laughs> 73% made of pie products. And he's an enormous gentleman. and He specialized <laughs> in the early 2000s. He targeted what he called pomos. P-O-M-O-S, Pormos. positions of maximum opportunity. Very, okay. And all he did, he didn't care about the ball, he didn't care about position. He just wanted huge men to pummel the ball forward and use set pieces, throw-ins, corners, free kicks. I mean, the idea was ultimately undone completely by possession-based teams. One thing that
1: I've noticed, the best coaches with the best players, even in basketball, It was assumed that they were doing things also strategically the best. But it could have been that they just had more talent or that they're superior coaches in other aspects. We for sure have shown that the best teams were not making optimal choices, but people were copying them and thought it was true. I believe that that's very likely happening in soccer, that if you took Man City or Real Madrid and had them play pomos, I bet with superior talent they might actually be even better than if they had played the... Possession-based style. You know,
0: Sam Allardyce is probably watching this live stream in his underpants somewhere in the middle of England, and I want to apologize. (laughs) You make me eat my words when poor Moors, when they do come back. But another of your ideas I do want to segue into quickly before we look at some of the barriers to data just sweeping into football as if it was just another American sport where we can go in the kind of money ball approach. I love one of your ideas you look at football and you say what the hell are they doing passing it back to the goalkeeper? It's that absolute works. insanity.
1: Okay, so we look at everything as risk reward, right? So. The best thing that can happen if you pass back to the goalie is you keep possession at some small percentage more. Although, I, when I see pass back to goalies against presses, usually the goalie ends up launching it anyway. So, it's, you've gained no advantage. But let's say you assume you gain some small advantage of possession, right? The risk of passing it back is so, so high relative to the reward, it doesn't make any sense. But Ted's gonna tell me I'm wrong, I think.
2: I won't say that you're wrong, but soccer very much worships at the Church of Latter-day Pep Guardiola. The...
1: Popovich of... Absolutely.
2: We looked at all of the passes back to goalkeepers for the top three teams anyway, so we would say the talented teams. There were 1,900 passes back to the goalkeeper. And we found that of that sequence set, there were 24 goals that resulted as part of that. And there was one goal against it. And it was a really goofy, chested back pass. You will say, we're not looking at what... Yeah, the this other is where your data were. Absolutely, I I disagree with you.
1: It doesn't tell me anything that the top teams are doing it. We need to have, when the defender has the ball and they have a marginal choice of passing it back to the goalie or passing it forward, we need to look at the expected goal chain from each of that marginal decision, you have nothing. Actually, a paper this year at your very own conference
2: has incorporated backwards passes, and there's a video that shows that as they're passing it backwards, when they take it out of a congested space, they're increasing the expected goals as part of the sequence, because now they've got space to move forward. And the difference between your game and our game is figuring out ways to decompress while maintaining possession and switching the ball, which also often involves a deep backwards pass, Is useful now you can really screw it up but we went back and we looked at the League one data so like the third tier in England which often has bumpy pitches etc the most goals scored against the team as part of a back pass or an attempted back pass to the goalkeeper were only four a lot but nevertheless uh, it's an overblown thing
0: soccer perfect. is ultimately a game of creating attacking space and in passing that ball back it does lengthen the field kind of extends the place to attack like an accordion i've got a feeling that you daryl have been looking in particular a lot at the work of one joe hart who <laughs> <laughs> for those who know him is a disaster hero this of thing. All. yeah he's like the vernon mad max maxwell of soccer <laughs> there are barriers to the emergence of stats in the world of football that are unique to the game. You've hit some of them. There's an overload of variables, that there's a lack of goals. I mean, in baseball also, and this is changing slightly, the data revolution happened because the data was commonly out there and available. It was in the public domain. Whereas soccer, Ted, you will know this better than I do, it's been often private, incredibly proprietary, most certainly not kind of freely shared, between clubs, is that a problem? Or is it that our models are too primitive and crude?
2: Well, I certainly think that it's held back the advancement of the game. We're behind, we're way behind. One of the amazing things about America is baseball had their revolution and it kind of drug all the other sports in together. Part of being able to do that is having a bunch of very smart brains that have access to useful data. And soccer has not had that and it's caused issues with it.
0: In terms of the data that we have, I mean, we can debate whether it's crude or whether it's developing. What I want to understand is, do we have data that can capture the contributions of a player like Ngolo Kante. He's like the Ark of the Covenant, every team he <laughs> plays on wins. I mean, he's about five foot seven, league titles, World Cups. He's got a massive motor, he's got positional brilliance, he's an incredible tackler, incredible interceptions. So much of what he does is because of his miraculous awareness of space. Does soccer have the beginnings of data that we can? analyze a player and his contribution like an goal? We do
2: now. The most basic element of defensive ability is a pressure. When I close somebody down, it's not necessarily to win the ball right now. It's to actually destabilize that possession, potentially win it back. So what we can look at is like a top-down model that says when Angolo Kante pressures the ball, what happens? And how many pressures is he doing? Looking at Conte is amazing. Another guy that comes up is Roberto Firmino up top for Liverpool. Bobby Chompas. He sets their press and he sets their defensive element all the time. So when we started looking at Roberto Firmino, I think we had 723 pressures in like 35 games last year, which is a lot of information about where he's trying to defend the ball. And then 187 times within like five seconds of him pressing somebody his team won the ball back so that's a little bit of credit where we're trying to find better ways to say these defensive players we know they're super important like and Kanté is amazing how do we figure out how to better measure that and then give that out to the team so they can use that in recruitment
1: without data for example we had a player chuck hayes would never happen right he was a six foot four center where the average size is like 6 11 couldn't shoot a free throw he had no chance of making the NBA, except when you looked at the data, you always went from an okay defense to an elite defense when he was on the floor. So the data is going to bring new players in, which I think is your point, which is pretty exciting. Like All these downtrodden, less fast, too small, looked the wrong way, players are going to make it into the Premier
0: League. So to recap, Bobby Firmino, another great stat, he has 97 teeth and they're all beautiful. <laughs> A lot of the data analysis that's crept into American sports is because although you are an incredibly capitalist culture, your sports are crazily orchestrated, uh, salary caps, you have economic parity, drafts, rev shares. You have the incentive here to look for inefficiencies because the financial Parity determines that you use your brains but world football. That's the anarchical beast There is so much money. There's so many piles of cash So we don't have the kind of same incentive. How much is that a barrier as you guys see it to the development of statistics?
1: You would think the pressure of relegation would be enough to drive a lot of these teams but I think what you find is what you said is the opposite and that when you have a franchise in the North American model, you know you're going to be a team in five years, in ten years. So you're, Except if you're the Knicks. They're still a franchise. <laughs> this is the last I checked. They have a 14% chance of being really relevant. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, knowing you have a franchise has
0: allowed more investment. Yeah, I mean, you're in the relegation zone where three teams go down into essentially the equivalent of A baseball. What do you do? You fire your manager and you desperately try and buy a striker. Like, that's just the standard operating procedure. A, you
1: guys fire your managers all the time. You don't even need good data to know that the most successful clubs have long-running managers who create a stable environment, recruit to their system, create a whole holistic look of how they acquire, who they pay, everything. Yet over there, I see like a new manager sometimes three times a year for one club. And the manager does not just inform the tactics
0: on the field. The manager for Manchester United is with one hand doing that and still with the other
1: hand signing off on
0: the transfer. The director of football is a new idea.
1: Yeah, which is another thing. Like Generally, again, there have been successful coach GMs in multiple sports, but the skill sets are so different. I would be a horrible coach. I think coach D'Antoni would say like, hey, my greatest skill set is not to be the GM. The time horizons are different, the skill sets are different, yet it's combined. I think we'll know that soccer's moved far once that's separated. The coaching issue is
2: significant, and the coach on recruitment issue is a massive one. When you're a coach, you spend 50, 60 hours a week, not just on like, the tactical element, but you kind of oversee everything as a head coach, and then you have to do all the press. You don't have time to do recruitment, especially in a worldwide
0: place. How much is just the global nature of the game, the geographical barrier for scouting impacting the amount of data? that's really gonna be useful.
2: It has been significant and it was a massive deal in the early days, but it also was a big advantage because you look at players from disrespected leagues. French 2 is a great example. French 2 has a lot of very good players playing in a very athletic league and Angolo Kante came from there. Riyad Mahrez came from there. Those guys turned into Premier League winners and they cost peanuts. The Dutch League, when guys perform well, you really have to be careful about their age because a lot of them are playing against 18 to 22-year-old center backs, yes. and suddenly they're cutting through them partly because of physical maturity and much less so because of their ability. You put them in a league that's much more physically strong and has a more normal peak age curve, and suddenly they just flop. And we see that again and again. So you've got to be really careful about looking at that, which isn't even relative age effect. It's comparative competitive age. So when you're able to look at it in the right framework and you've done some research, well, it might take you a year or two to do this, then you can start to sort of find the unpolished gems. But from a scouting perspective, that's always the thing that constrains you. I don't know how much time your scouts spend watching guys in a year, but you know, keeping up with just that, you almost have to use data to find guys that are worth scouting or just chucking them out.
1: The MBA is totally different, like super sophisticated on the scouting side, but that's because the pool of people is very finite. It's a lot easier to identify basketball players. Like they're tall, they can (laughs) jump. Like it's like you can visually, I call it the mall test. Like if you, you can be in a mall and you can be like, that guy's an NBA player. Like it's actually that identifiable. We put just incredible amounts of resources into scouting like a, a very finite pool. And that's much, we basically have like elephant babies. We get one pick a year that we need to nurture for many times, whereas you guys could take a tadpole approach where you get like 500 prospects and just try them all out. I do envy that actually. Who's doing it well?
2: Which teams are using data well? It's actually difficult to tell, much like in in Daryl's, nobody talks, right? Like, you're not supposed to talk about how good you are. Liverpool have been doing this for quite a long time. They've been in place, like Dr. Ian Graham and Michael Edwards, since about 2011. So they had a long time to be able to learn and mature as part of that process, and we're seeing the fruits of it now. Arsenal bought an entire data company, StatDNA, but then you hit the wall of... Do we know things or are we able to execute on the things? If you just have knowledge, it's not useful. If you're able to execute it, you have a good process to then implement it and then also to correct the mistakes because it's not perfect work. Then that's the important bit. And it's hard to see that from the outside. We mostly just hear about who fails.
0: Last question on recruitment. It's a quick one for you, Ted. Is there any metric by which Christian Pulisic, the American from Hershey, Pennsylvania, who was brought from Dortmund by Chelsea for $70 million, (laughs) is there any metric that... I'm not aware of that says, yes, he's worth that money.
2: He was super exciting two years ago. I think that we've seen him not progress at the same level that you would hope. But development isn't like a linear path, like you get rocky bits. He's an excellent ball mover, so good dribbler. And he's good at creating for his teammates. From a coaching perspective, if you were going to coach him down and give him analytics data-driven coaching, you want him to get into the box a little more and be able to take central shots, increase his shot volume. It's not bad because he's so young, and he's playing in a pretty good league, but 70 million was probably an overpay.
1: That was a long-winded way of saying no. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you from my sport, if a guy for two years stagnates, yeah, they can still advance, but it's really gonna put a lid on where they're gonna be. Pulisic worth 70 million.
0: A lot of that money was for the American market and just to make sure he gets regular mentions at the Sloan Conference. But tactically, <laughs> are there inefficiencies in football? Like in the NBA, the three-point shot. Now, I'm fascinated for you. You've talked a little bit about position, possession, but what fundamental flaws exist in soccer tactically that can be exploited by those managers who have the data and actually use it.
2: The set piece is most clubs when I would go talk to them spent 10 minutes a week, not a day, a week on this thing that actually accounts for about 25 to 30% of goals.
0: Corners, free kicks, essentially controllable situations.
2: Absolutely, and so we spent time figuring out sort of best practice and how do we analyze the opposition in order to increase the effectiveness of this. Should we recruit? It's not the most important thing when we recruit, but it's a nice added benefit of it.
1: Why aren't teams treating throw-ins on the other end as a freaking set? piece then if it's that important
2: so we've started to incorporate that the problem there (laughs) Mm -hmm. is that there's like one long throw coach in the world and he now works at Liverpool Thomas
0: Gronnemark when Liverpool Football Club hired this throwing coach Thomas Gronnemark they were mocked and derided I mean absolutely it was hilarious to the world of football but the truth is that throw-ins in football are the quickest way to see possession I think 50% of the time in these throw-ins which happen all bloody game long, the other team actually takes control of the ball. And Gronemark has this flat, direct throw. That's his trademark, which changes that. It's given Liverpool a crucial advantage. Oh. So no we, one's talking about it.
2: With the way that we've got long throws right now, even the top level, we're not executing it properly. If you have your wide players and you've got the offside line, you cannot be offside on a throw. And so if you've got two fast guys wide, you can pick up the ball quickly. You can skim it on the ground. The defense cannot cope with that. So if you start executing that strategy regularly, if they drop deep, then they suddenly open the entire center of the pitch, which is the most valuable area. This is a thing that we think FIFA at some point might change the law
1: on. I was going to say, they're going to change the rule. Yeah, exactly. They keep changing the rules on James
0: Harden, so (laughs) they're going to change the rules on you. From basketball other wisdoms in soccer that just seem plain wrong to you, Daryl? I mean, you talked to me about the core question for every NBA coach, the core choice. Do you crash the boards when you take a shot or do you immediately
1: have your players retreat? Two things that we know that teams are choosing super suboptimal. The largest one is really well-known three-pointers. When the line first came in, coaches were actively coaching against it. Right? And we now, of course, know that was not only wrong, it was like 10 to 15 wins wrong. Like just catastrophically wrong. Offensive rebounds, many, many of the top teams choose not to offensive rebound; They just choose to defend. There's been many great Sloan papers showing that that's suboptimal, and yet it propagates because the top coaches who win do it, but it doesn't make it the right choice. Just because Pep plays through the goalie, it does not make it the right choice to do that. Now, maybe it sounds like there's better data, so I might be wrong, but it's fine.
0: (laughs) Is there a common wisdom that you know is completely wrong in soccer? Probably a bit less impact of
2: offensive rebounding, but it's a similar vein in that coaches will still put guys on the post when they're defending corners. Oh, yeah. And when we look at that, we're like, well, first of all, that doesn't stop them from scoring through them. Often like, the ball just goes past them because they can't react in time. And second of all, if we know that we want to run regularly, we need those guys to potentially be up the pitch. We can either overload the defensive zone that we're trying to defend, or we can create more counterattacks. And that counterattack is exactly what you're talking about. It's a little bit of risk, or at least perceived risk, but if we get an extra goal, say once out of every 10 games, that gets us up the table, and it's actually quantifiable because we know that there's like win bonuses and point bonuses in the leagues.
0: I'm fascinated by the place of the opinion of individuals who are data analysts within football because right now the big clubs, they do have data analysts, Arsenal, Roma, Liverpool. I mean there's a mound of opposition research that is developed by quant
1: guys for every single game. How much is actually being used? Until you have like very, very senior buy-in with money behind it, it's sad to say but you more or less have almost nothing. I've talked to many analysts who've gone to work in the Premier League And they eventually leave, they're like, no one listens to me. One went to Formula One because he was like, they at least listen to me now. So you're going to lose the best people. You're not going to have the right money behind it. And then at the end of the day, if your coach or manager is not implementing the things you're investing all the money in, the owner is the one who's going to have to tell them, hey, we're either going to do this or we're going to get someone else. And until that moment... It doesn't really happen.
2: There are a couple of Premier League clubs that are finding pretty good players and they're recruiting them, and then those guys can't get on the pitch. And like that's a nightmare. And it's not something that the analytics group can ever smooth over. It comes to the owner and definitely the director of football level to say, we have to find a coach that will then execute and play the players that are good as opposed to all the other ones.
0: Oh, the play is even mentally conditioned to receive it right now.
2: The player population is very different. Some guys love to see it, but you know, there are other players that want nothing to do with it.
0: I mean, baseball became a game of homers, walks, strikeouts, your three true outcomes. Basketball became a game of threes and layups, NFL, a high-flying passing league. When data analysis does grip soccer properly, properly, what kind of a game will it become?
2: Well, you see a lot of set pieces. And the nice part about set pieces is that you can actually manage your game time. It's often an underdog strategy. We think of Sam Allardyce, you know, battering people, Tony Pulis as well. But if you have good teams that start to take that, it's very difficult for a team to deal with you in the final third because, like, there are no good options. If we give them a throw in, it's a long throw. If we give them a corner, then they're running specific routes, NFL-style routes, to be able to find advantages. I think we'll see more counters, like more aggressive, slightly open. One of the things that doesn't work in basketball that does work in soccer is this pressing style. Like, you cannot high press effectively and the NBA. No
1: one has done it successfully. I actually don't eliminate it as a strategy. Fair enough. Patino was the last guy to do it with the Celtics, actually.
2: And in soccer, it is one of the strategic
1: ways. Like, no, it's ways awesome. I've fight. been like, oh, my God, finally people are doing things that make sense. They're getting them in their end. <laughs> They're trapping them. They're not assuming everyone's going to make a bunch of bets. They're waiting for the mistakes and attacking. Like it, That development's given me hope. Well, and I think
2: Liverpool style where they've got a lot of pace in the front line and they've got guys that can play it long, that's also a thing that's going to consistently happen.
0: Football's going to be a game of high-pressing throw-ins in the future, if Daryl has his way. We're going to take a a couple of quick questions, great one to start with. With Sir Alex Ferguson uh, and now Arsene Wenger, both of whom were at their clubs for over 20 years, gone. Do you think the long-term manager being dead in soccer means that long-term strategy using analytics becomes less feasible, really case for your director of football.
2: It's much more so an ownership decision, as Daryl's saying, it's gotta come from the top down. I think that looking at how City Football Group work, like they're gonna keep Pepl around for a long time and analytics will help him operate better, won't necessarily help them save any money. (laughs) It's like people just charge them whatever they can. But one thing that happens in football right now is like so many guys get cleared out with the manager and that's institutional knowledge. I'm sure that you guys hate to lose guys that have been around for a while that have really good knowledge because it costs your organization a lot.
1: Yeah, whenever you have success and Golden State's been through it, we've been through it. You know, our best people get zapped away.
0: How does MLS compare? in terms of its usage to Europe? Much less so, and part
2: of that's a budget constraint. Like, the money just isn't there. Money for data can easily be spent on players or potentially more coaches for the academy, which is a big push for the United States. The USSF has a huge interesting program where they are now data tracking like U15 on up, and that's the first time that's really been done at a wide scale. We know almost nothing about youth football. It will be very valuable because we will learn how players develop and what they can develop into, but it's also gonna be very choppy, and you need to invest in that properly at the country level to have enough information to make decisions on it.
0: Last question from me. It's really from Billy Bean, most regular guest of all time on Men in Blazers. He's the Alec Baldwin to our show for (laughs) Saturday Night Live. I was going to interview Jurgen Klopp recently, and he asked this question that he wanted me to ask Jurgen. It's really essentially about whether managers matter at all in football, which differentiates it from the other sport. I'm going to ask you both, if you owned a team for 10 years, And I could get you 10 years of the greatest manager ever, Sir Alex Ferguson, to be your manager. At his best, or 10 years of Lionel Messi at his best, the best player in the world, which would you choose? (laughs) That's such an easy
1: answer. Well, messy, of course. Come on. It is. How messy. much do I have to pay him? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> zero. Tough. Do I get him for zero?
2: Managers yeah. is like a U curve, though. There's this whole group in the middle that don't matter, and then like really good managers matter quite a bit, and really bad managers quite a bit. But there's a giant selection bias in there that says that the really bad guys get chucked out, and the really good guys then move on to much higher paying jobs.
1: They they have incredible influence over ten years. It's not just the tactics you see in the field. It's You know, who you recruit, who you hire, they're massively important and influential uh, over a 10-year time horizon. Over maybe one year, it's not as big of an impact as you'd like. That's why it's very puzzling that they change managers so much over there to me.
0: The right answer is, at the end of the day, the general manager. The (laughs) general? That's what we need. 10 years of the greatest general manager in his pomp. Daryl. Are saying Ted or? I'll take both of you on this team. (laughs) What did you call the team that we're going to buy? The, the launch and squish there you football go. club. God love. Yeah. That is, if that is the one great outcome from this panel, I will be a very happy man. Well, thank you, thank Ted, you, yeah. you're a beautiful bloke. Daryl, you are a king to football, to numbers, and all who sail in them.